Thank you for joining us today. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you're about to watch is from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. Up to this point in our series, we have seen the first half of the book. In chapters 1 through 8, Jesus demonstrated through his life miracles and teaching that he truly is the Son of God. And through the second half of Mark, we'll see Jesus establishing his kingdom by going to the cross. Our entire study through the Gospel of Mark thus far is available in our feed. We would love for you to join in. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Amen, Hope Church family. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to Mark chapter 9 as we continue in our verse-by-verse study through this beautiful gospel. I want to jump right in today. We have no time to waste. I want to talk to you this morning about the subject of the greatest threat to our spiritual lives. Have you ever considered this question? What is the greatest threat to our spiritual lives? I think it's really important that we answer this question because if we don't, we run the risk this morning of being oblivious to the number one thing that could rob us of all that Jesus has us for us has for us in this life as his disciples. And so when I think about this question, the first answer that kind of rises to the surface of my heart is, well, is it Satan? Satan is the greatest threat to our lives. Is it the Satan? Is it uh, is it Satan? The scriptures testify to the reality that Satan is like a roaring lion. He's prowling around seeking someone to devour. He primarily attacks us by throwing lies our way, just like he did in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. If you remember in the garden, he tempted Adam and Eve to believe the lie that God really wasn't for them and that therefore God couldn't be trusted and they should follow their own ways rather than God's way. This is the way Satan attacks. And so clearly, Satan's a massive threat, but think for a minute, is he really the greatest threat? Because here's what we also know about Satan. The scriptures testify that he, like us, is a created being. He is not co-equal with God. Being a created being means that he is not omnipotent and he's not omnipresent, meaning he is not all-powerful and he can only be in one place at one time. God is, or Satan is not omnipresent. And so though his attacks towards us are forceful, ultimately, Hope Church, they are forceful, but ultimately they are both limited in both power and in scope because he can only be at one place at one time. So clearly he's a great threat, but is he the greatest threat? Well, if it's not Satan, maybe it's the world. See, Satan can only be at one place at one time, but the world, everywhere we go in the world, is broken. We live amidst this this broken world where the water that we swim in every day when it comes to our culture in our city, it's poisonous, and yet we don't even know it. Why? Because it's normal for us. It's so normal to live amidst this culture. The air that we breathe is so anti the way of Jesus that remaining spiritually alive and vibrant in this current cultural moment, it presents significant challenges. But what if I told you this morning that according to Jesus, 
Neither Satan nor the world are actually the greatest threats to our spiritual lives. What if I told you this morning that according to Jesus, the greatest threat to a Christian's spiritual life is actually something we would never expect? The passage that we're going to study today is going to reveal to us Jesus' take on what the greatest threat to our spiritual lives are and what we should do in light of that threat. And I want to warn you this morning on Super Bowl Sunday that the passage that we're going to study this morning is honestly incredibly heavy. There is some intense language, some honestly violent language that Jesus uses in this passage, and I want to prepare you in advance for that. But hear my heart. I believe Jesus' intensity this morning is indicative of how serious he views this threat on our lives. And he loves us so much and loves others so much that he has to warn us with the strongest language possible in light of this threat. And so Jesus here is picking up where he left off with John and the disciples last week as they tried to stop some kingdom work happening. Jesus picks up right on the heels of that, and he's teaching his disciples then and his disciples now what a true follower of Jesus looks like in light of this great threat to our spiritual lives. And so with that being said, I hope you have opened your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're going to read verses 42 through 50 this morning. Jesus begins by speaking, and he says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. This is Jesus's words. You know, one of the great struggles of being a Christian in America right now in our current cultural moment is that what Jesus considered normal Christianity, our world looks at as extreme. Our world sees somebody who's passionately pursuing Jesus with all their life, that has oriented their entire life around seeking first the kingdom of God. They see somebody who's willing to sacrifice not only their time, but their finances for the sake of the kingdom advancing. They look at that kind of person who lives their life out as a Christian in the public sphere and not just in the private sphere, and they look at that kind of person and they say, that's extreme. Do you feel that? But that's the problem, because what our world considers extreme Jesus considers normal. And what I believe Jesus is doing in this passage is he's calling all of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus, he's calling us back to what normal Christianity really is. He's calling us back and he's saying, listen, I know it might feel extreme, but this is what following me actually looks like. And nowhere is this more evident 
than in Jesus' prescriptions to us when it comes to our own personal pursuit of holiness as well as our protecting of the holiness of other people in our lives. This passage comes on the heels of John and his disciples, John and the disciples stopping somebody from casting out a demon in somebody else's life. And, And Jesus goes straight into teaching his disciples about the seriousness of causing other people to sin as well as ourselves. Notice some key language in this passage. Four different times in this passage, Jesus uses the phrase, causes to sin. The phrase in the Greek actually isn't a phrase, it's actually just one singular word, and it's the word, it's the Greek word, skandalizo. How about you say that 10 times fast? Skandalizo. Skandalizo. And it means exactly what it says. It means to cause somebody to sin, or more literally, to cause someone to stumble. To stumble. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I think about something causing me to stumble, I put that in the category of temptation. And when I think about temptation, I think about the tempter, the devil, the one who is throwing lies my way all the time, don't you? But here's the problem. This is so important to notice about Jesus' words. Not one time in this passage is the devil mentioned being the one tempting or causing someone to sin. In addition to that, not only is the devil not mentioned, but neither is the world. The world is not mentioned here at all as being the thing that causes someone to sin. And so that raises the question, well, if it's not the world and it's not the devil, then who is the tempter in the story? And according to Jesus, the tempter in the story is us. Us. Notice what Jesus says. He says, if your hand causes you to sin. If your foot causes you to sin, if your eyes cause you to sin. See, and this is where we find insight into Jesus' take on the greatest threat to our spiritual life. In Jesus' mind, the greatest threat, it's us. It's me. It's you. My flesh, my sinful nature is the greatest threat to my spiritual life and vitality. Your flesh, your sinful nature is the greatest threat to your spiritual life in your day. And this shouldn't surprise us when we consider what the scriptures testify about our flesh. You remember what the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 17. He says this, that the heart is deceitful, wait for it, above all else. And this makes all the sense in the world when we think about how temptation actually works. Consider this, Jesus' half-brother James speaking to us on the topic of temptation. Here's how he says temptation works. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This idea of being lured and enticed, it's painting the picture of fishing. I don't know if you grew up fishing. I grew up fishing with my granddad. We called him granddaddy. His name was Herbert. We love Herbert. We miss Herbert. And uh, when my granddad was teaching me to fish, you know what he never taught me to do? He never taught me to grab the fishing pole, throw it out there in the lake with the hook with nothing on the hook. He never said, Trenton, you're going to catch a fish if you just put the, foot, the, put the hook into the lake. He never taught me to do that. Why? Because there's nothing appetizing and enticing about a hook to a fish, right? So how did he teach me? He said, you got to put some bait on it. 
You got to take that hook and you got to wrap it in all sorts of bait, something that looks delicious. Why? Because you need to entice the hunger in that fish to grab hold of that hook. And if you entice that fish well enough, eventually that hook will bite and, or that fish will bite and then you've got the hook in that fish's mouth. And friends, what I want to show you is that temptation for fish and temptation for us works the exact same way. Write this down. Temptation is only tempting because it's enticing a fleshly desire already in us. You see it? James says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So an example, just for me right now personally, if you tempted me with like, hey, Trenton, you know what we should do after church today before the Super Bowl? We should go steal a car. I'm going to say, you're crazy. And also, there's nothing enticing to me about that. I've got a car. I'm all right. I'm in a good spot. Okay, that's not enticing. But let's be honest this morning, even right now as I stand here to preach, I've felt this every service, because of my fleshly desires to be liked, to be seen as awesome, to be respected and renowned in your hearts, there is a very real temptation in me to preach this message in such a way that I would hope that you actually make more of me than you do Jesus. Why is that? Because that temptation, that's targeting a fleshly desire that I have. And it's enticing. We are lured and enticed by our own sinful desires. The Bible speaks to the reality that all of us have a war going on in our souls if we're followers of Jesus. There is a war between the flesh and the spirit. The Bible says that these things are opposed to each other. The flesh is trying to keep us from doing what we really want to do as followers of Jesus. You ever feel, feel that? I feel that on a daily basis. And what Jesus wants us to see here is that this is the human condition for us who are followers of Jesus. This is our life. And what Jesus wants us to understand is that we are to wage war on the greatest threat in our lives, our sinful flesh. But how do we do that? Like really, how do we do that? If we see it as, as the greatest threat, if we see it, how do we engage in it? How do we make war on it. And I believe Jesus in this passage is going to give us three things that we all, if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, we must do to fight the greatest threat in our lives. And here's the first thing. Number one, we must vigilantly guard against causing other followers of Jesus to sin. Before Jesus starts with us, he starts he speaks to us worrying about other people. See, Jesus here is confronting the radical individualism of our day that says you shouldn't concern yourself with how your actions affect anybody else. You do you. Jesus goes, no, 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 no. If you're my follower, you have to concern yourself with how your actions affect other people. Notice what he says in verse 42. Let's look at it on the screen. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You see, there's a lot of debate about what this phrase little ones actually means. Does it mean actual little children or does it mean those of lowly status like we learned a couple weeks ago? But either way, the most important thing to notice about Jesus' statement here is what comes next. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. Who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to 
followers of Jesus, Christians. So therefore, the most clear and safe interpretation of what Jesus is calling us to be aware of here is that we all, as followers of Jesus, we should be very leery of leading anyone who is a follower of Jesus to sin. Jesus speaks to us using very extreme language, saying, listen, if you cause one of my followers to sin, instead of facing the consequences, the natural consequences that would arise as a result of this, it would be better for somebody if they took that millstone and threw it around their neck and you were thrown into the bottom of the ocean. Jesus is serious about us taking serious us causing other people to sin. A millstone in that time was a big, massive stone that was used to grind grain or corn. And here's a picture of one. And a donkey would get on this little apparatus or whatever this thing is, and the donkey would walk around. And here's what they say. The millstone had to be heavy enough that as they put the grain and corn in this bucket, it had to be heavy enough to actually grind the grain and grind the corn up to make it small. Scholars say that a millstone in Jesus' day probably weighed somewhere between 300 and 400 pounds. Consider the image. Consider how serious Jesus is about us taking serious if we're causing other people to sin. The image is if you throw that thing around your neck and you get dropped to the bottom of the ocean, you're not coming back. Now, why would he say this? He says this because he wants us to understand that the consequences of causing other believers to sin is serious. How we lead people, if we influence them to sin, we are doing them so much damage. Jesus is serious about this, but I want to clarify, Jesus is not saying that temptation is never going to come to a believer. He's simply stating that we need to be very guarded against making sure that you and I are not the ones who are the catalysts for temptation in other people's lives. This week, as I tried to let the weight of God's word bear weight on me, I was forced to pray and and ask the Lord, God, are there people in my life that I'm causing to sin? And very quickly and gently, the spirit of God raised people in my heart to my mind that I needed to go confess and repent to because I have been an instrument of destruction in their life, causing them to stumble. So this week, I had conversations with a friend about this very thing, just saying, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to be this influence in your life. Please forgive me. I don't know about you, but when I think about the people that I would most often cause to stumble, for me, the people that I most do that to are often the people who I'm most close to most comfortable with, the people that I love the most. I mean, think about it. For me, as a pastor, when I meet a stranger, very rarely do I think that I know of, am I making a stranger that I don't know stumble into sin? Why is that? Because I'm a pastor, and as a pastor, when I meet somebody I don't really know, I've got to be on, you know what I'm saying? I've got to represent Jesus well. I've got to be on, and so very rarely am I tempting somebody else to sin that way that I know of, but the people that I'm closest to, my family, My best friends, I let my guard down, if you will. And what ends up happening is my flesh ends up taking over, and my flesh can cause other people to sin. How about you? Who are the people in your life that you are causing to sin? Maybe it's your your family or your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, 
your kids, your coworkers? Who is it for you? To contrast this, though, Jesus wants us to know not only that we have the power to negatively affect people, we also have the ability in Christ to positively affect people to follow Jesus well. Think about this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus saying? He wants us to know as followers of Jesus that one of the greatest gifts you give to other followers of Jesus is your own personal pursuit of holiness. As you let Christ shine his light through your life, as you let Christ live his life through your life, here's what's going to happen. Other people are going to experience it, and they're going to want to grow in Christ's likeness, and they're going to end up giving glory to our Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, listen, be very weary of how you negatively affect people, but also live in light of knowing that you, because of Christ in you, you can positively influence others as well. But here's the question we gotta wrestle with. How then do we become people who don't negatively affect people, who don't cause other followers of Jesus to sin? How do we practically prevent ourselves from being those kinds of people? And I believe a clue could be in what Jesus tells us to do next. Here's the second thing we must do. Number two, we must ruthlessly remove anything that causes us to sin. In the same way that we need to be concerned about guarding other people, one of the ways we do that is by guarding ourselves. Look what Jesus says in this very intense passage. He says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus here in this passage launches into three commands, three imperatives, imperatives to warn us about the danger of sin to ourselves. And before we jump in and talk about it, I, I got to explain something that you might have noticed. Maybe many of you missed. But I want to I show you that actually in this passage, verses 44 and 46 are not present in the translation that we just read. Verses 44 and 46 have been omitted in this English translation. And the reason for that is because the translators of this version used different manuscripts that version translators of other versions didn't use. But here's why this shouldn't concern us. Verse 44 and 46 is simply restating what Jesus says in verse 48, where he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so here's why it shouldn't concern us, Hope Church family. It shouldn't concern us because the meaning, the Holy Spirit-inspired authorial intent of this passage is not changed in any way, shape, or form due to the omission of this statement. Why? Because it's there at the end. And so the reason we can we can trust this word is because we can trust that the Holy Spirit of God, what he's given us in this translation is exactly what he wanted us to hear and to read. And so you can trust this word. You can trust God's word here. And so with that being said, I just needed to have that little addendum there. What is Jesus actually saying? With this intense language, with this picture, what is he actually saying? Here's what I think he's saying. Our hands, feet, and eyes 
are all incredibly important members of our body. Are they not? I, I don't know about you, but I would like to, if, I, if I'm able to, I'd like to keep my hands, keep my feet, and keep my eyes. I, I like seeing my kids. I like seeing my family. I like seeing you pretty people on Super Bowl Sunday. I like being able to come to church. I like being able to use my hands. These are important body parts that God has given us for our good and for our benefit. But here's what I think Jesus is trying to say. Jesus is trying to say that if something, even if as something as important as our eyes, feet, and hands, if those things are causing us to sin, we need to be willing to sacrifice what is important so that we don't miss out on what is essential, life in the kingdom of God. These are all important body parts, important members of our body. And Jesus is saying, listen, I know they're important, but they are not essential. What is essential? Life in the kingdom of God. And if these things are causing you to sin, you need to be willing to let go of what is important so you don't miss out on what is essential. Is there something right now in your life that you consider to be so important, and yet it's the thing causing you to sin? Are you willing to ruthlessly remove that thing? Not only that, but multiple scholars point out that these body parts might also represent some larger categories of our life. For example, the hand could be representative of what we do. We work with our hands. This is what we do with our daily lives. Our feet could represent where we go, where we spend our time. And then our eyes obviously can represent what we see, what we lay our eyes on. And so if that's the case, here's the questions we've got to consider. Is there something that you are doing that is causing you to sin? Is there some place that you are going that is causing you to sin? Is there something that you are consistently laying your eyes upon that are causing you to sin? See, a lot of us, a lot of us understand that we are called to remove the morally evil things from our life, don't we? We get that. But what I want you to see here that Jesus says is this hand, these feet, these eyes, they're not morally evil. They're actually good things. They are good things. And so what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that, of course, we're called to remove things that are morally evil from our lives. But we might be, we might need to, we might have to for the sake of our holiness and pursuit of Jesus. We might actually have to remove good things that done the wrong way are causing us to sin. Jesus' point is that you and I need to be so ruthless in removing anything in our lives, whether it's important or not, whether it's inherently evil or not, so that we can enjoy all that Jesus has for us in life in the kingdom of God. This is his point. So for me, just practically, for me, social media, not a morally evil thing in and of itself, but for me, something that is not good because it causes me and it tempts me with things that are in my fleshly desire. So I've never been on social media where I was just prompted and provoked to pursue Jesus with all of my life. I just, like, like I could be on Instagram or Twitter or X or whatever the heck it's called, and I'm in there, and I'm like, oh, I can see a, a cool quote from a pastor that I follow. That's awesome. I want to pursue Jesus. The next slide, the next tweet, it's all debauchery. Like, it's just... I've never been on social media where it just only provoked me to life in Christ. 
And so for me, one of the things that I've just practically had to do, and listen, this is me, this is my testimony, I've had to remove all social media from my phone. Because if I spend too much time on it, here's where it's going to lead me. It's going to entice fleshly desires in me for comparison and for jealousy and for lust. And I just can't do that. The only way I can get on social media now is on my computer. If I have it in my phone at all times, I am just tempted and lured by my own desires. So I want to be willing to remove anything, anything, if it's not helping me follow Jesus. What about for you? Is it also social media? Is it something on your phone? Is it, is it alcohol? Is it food? I don't know what it is. You fill in the blank. But what is even a good thing that a good thing in the wrong context is actually causing you to sin? Are we willing to remove even good things from our life if it's causing us to stumble in our pursuit of Jesus? But here's a question we've got to wrestle with if we want to take God's word seriously. Is Jesus being literal here? Is Jesus being literal? Does he actually, Luke, want us to chop off our hands? Christians throughout history have taken Jesus literally here and have done this in the pursuit of, of purity and holiness. So if Jesus is saying this, do we all need to come in here next week with no hands? Well, here's why I believe this is not to be taken literally. For a couple reasons. Here's the first one. Because three times in the Old Testament, bodily mutilation is actually forbidden. It is explicitly condemned in the Old Testament. That's one reason. But here's the second and honestly probably more important reason. The second reason I don't believe this is to be taken literal is because removing something external doesn't purify something internal. I love how Pastor David Guzik says it. Here's how he says it. The problem with taking Jesus' words literally here is that bodily mutilation does not go far enough in controlling sin. Sin is more of a matter of the heart than of any particular limb or organ. And so if I cut off my right hand, my left is still ready to sin. If I completely dismember my body, I can still sin in my mind and in my heart. Don't you know that to be true? But here's where this hits me. Okay, if even chopping my hands off, chopping my feet off, plucking my eyes out, if even going to that far of an extreme can't purify the sinful flesh in my heart, what hope do I have for actually a changed life in my soul? And friends, that's why I want you to know the good news of the gospel. This is the good news because Jesus has said, listen, there's nothing you can do to purify your inful, inside sinful heart. But listen, I sure can. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the new covenant promise for those of us who are followers of Jesus. He says, listen, you can't do anything, but I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, same phrase, cause you to what? Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my ways. <laughs> Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. And if you don't hear anything else, here's what I want you to hear. That if you're a follower of Jesus today, this is true for you. 
There's no debating it. This is the new covenant blood-bought promise from God over your life. You have a new heart. You have been given his spirit, and it's by his spirit that he's going to cause us to walk in his ways. Notice the contrast. Our flesh causes us to sin, but his spirit causes us to walk in his ways. And this is why it's really important why we don't believe that Jesus here is telling his disciples that they're going to lose their salvation and go to hell if they don't chop off their arms. Seriously, Jesus is using extreme language here. But the true reality of hell to provoke the genuine follower of Jesus to fight, to fight. He's saying, if you have been changed by God, if you've been saved by God and the spirit of Christ lives inside of you, you're gonna live this way. You're gonna fight your sin. You're gonna pursue holiness. See, this passage is not about losing your salvation. It's about showing that you are saved. The apostle Paul, picking up on what Jesus was teaching here in Romans chapter eight, he speaks on this idea. He says, for if you, Christian, take this for what it is, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, it's so key, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What is he saying? Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome and the Christians for today, and he's saying essentially that if you call yourself a Christian, and yet you never fight your sin, if you call yourself a Christian and all you ever do is live according to your flesh, you will not end up losing your salvation. You'll end up proving you never had it in the first place. For the true born again Christian, evidence of the new covenant of the spirit living inside of us is that you become a fighter. You fight by the spirit's power against the greatest threat in your life. A true saving faith is a fighting faith. But Jesus has never promised that the Christian, this side of heaven, will be sinless. But he has called us to fight against this sin. Maybe you're like me. You've been a Christian for a number of years. You've been following Jesus. You, you deeply desire the life of Christ in you. You deeply desire to be totally surrendered to Jesus. And yet, you have been fighting the same sin habits year after year after year. And you've grown discouraged and weary in your fight against sin. And if you're not careful, in your worst moments, I've done this, in your worst moments, you start thinking and you start believing the lies of the enemy. Listen, if you're fighting this sin a true Christian wouldn't be fighting the sin. They would have won this already. You might not actually be a Christian. And if that's where you're at today, I want to encourage you with the words of John Newton. John Newton was an old-time pastor who wrote the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. We've all sang it so many times. John Newton's greatest contribution to Christianity, other than that song, was he used to write one like he's written thousands of pastoral letters to different church parishioners over the course of time who would reach out to him asking about the Christian life. And in one of his letters to a Christian dealing with the discouragement that comes from indwelling sin, here's what he says to them, and I want to say it to you. He says, take heart, brother or sister. Your eyes are open. You love Jesus 
You want to walk in his ways. You love the way of salvation. You love leading people in the way of salvation. And then here's what he says. And it was not so with you once. In other words, you didn't always have those desires. And so here's what he says. He says, either you stole those blessings or you received them from the Spirit of Christ. Christian, your eyes are opened. You love Jesus. You want to submit your whole life to him. You want to help other people follow him. Yes, you're struggling, but hear me, you didn't always have those desires. So either you're faking it or the Spirit of Christ gave it to you. Take heart in the new covenant that Jesus bought for you on the cross with his life, death, and resurrection through him and him alone has he given us a new heart. And once we have that new heart, friends, we start to fight. We start to fight. We pursue holiness. And listen, it's going to cost us. We're going to have to sacrifice. And as we sacrifice it, it actually might, might end up resulting in some suffering in our life. But here's why, as Jesus finishes this passage, why we've got to keep doing that, why we've got to press on. Here's why. We must sacrifice and suffer now in order to be a pleasing, in order to be pleasing to God and to be at peace with others. Jesus ends this passage by saying, listen, everyone's gonna be salted with fire. He starts bringing up salt and fire. Like what in the world does salt and fire have to do with all this stuff? Well, in the scriptures, salt and fire are always pictures of suffering and sacrifice. And so when Jesus says, listen, everyone's gonna be salted with fire, here's what he's saying. As we live this way, as we fight our sin and guard other people from sin, as we live this way, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna have to sacrifice in order to do that. And your sacrifice might actually result in some suffering. Do you remember how God's word says in 1 Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted? So listen, you're gonna probably have to sacrifice and you're probably gonna endure some suffering. But listen, if you do that, here's the beauty of salt and fire. Anything salt touches, it preserves. And anything fire touches, it purifies. And so as we sacrifice and live this way, here's what's gonna happen. God is gonna use that sacrifice and he's gonna use your suffering to preserve you, to keep you to himself, and to purify you in this fight for holiness. And as we do that together, we live at peace with one another. What might happen, Hope Church, if together, collectively, as a church family, we lived this way together? We pursued this together. What might happen in our homes and in our families and in our lives and in our city? You know, I was thinking this week, every revival and awakening that has ever happened throughout history has at its core a remnant of people who have been so convicted by the gospel of grace that it's resulted in a life of deep repentance and confession and a pursuit of holiness. Every revival, you find this as a core. And what if, because I believe God wants to send that. I believe God wants to pour out his spirit on this city and in our church. What if though, that the reason this hasn't happened yet in our city is because God's people haven't repented deep enough yet? What if God wants to send this, but he can't send it right now because why? Because we don't have a heart posture that's ready to receive it, that would steward it well. 
Listen, we can't force God to move, but we sure can be ready if he so chose. And this is one of the ways that we get ready. So I want to encourage you to bow your heads, to close your eyes. For the Christian in the room, this is a message for us, ultimately. This is a message for us, calling us to examine our lives and how we're affecting other people to sin and how we have things in our lives that are causing us to sin. And maybe the Spirit of God is is drawing you to repentance. Here's what I want to say to you. It is not the judgment of God that leads you to repentance. It is not the fear of the wrath of God that the Scriptures say leads you to repentance. It is the kindness of God that draws you to repentance. And so here's what I hope you feel. I hope you feel God in his grace and mercy calling you to dump out before him what he already knows to be true about you. That his love, because he wants you to do that because he loves you and he knows what's best for you and there's stuff in our life that's killing us. But if we can bring it out into the light, we'll be met with the mercy and grace of Jesus. So for the believer... How is the Lord leading you to respond? What is God calling on you to lay down, to repent of, to to remove out of your life? Maybe you need to go to a brother and sister in Christ and say, brother, sister, I'm sorry. I've been used as an instrument to lead you more towards a life of death rather than a life of the kingdom of God. For people in the room who aren't followers of Jesus, you might have heard this message and gone, man, this is intense. This is, I, I, this is a lot. I don't know if I can get down on this Jesus thing. This seems like a lot of sacrifice. Here's what I want to say to you. Listen, it is, but here's why you can do that. Because Jesus sacrificed everything he had to buy you back. He loved you so much that he gave up everything. He sacrificed. He suffered on the cross. He hung there. He was buried for three days as he died, but then he rose again victorious, declaring forever that whatever's holding you back, whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever your flesh is trying to lead you towards to death, he has defeated that once and for all. And if you would just simply receive him, surrender to him, you would get all the benefits of the new covenant. He'll give you a new heart, a new spirit he'll put within you and he'll change your life forever. So if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we're gonna have pastors down here. We would love to talk with you about what it means to really follow Jesus and how Jesus can change your life. But for the rest of us, however the spirit of God is leading you to respond, I wanna encourage you, be obedient. Be quick to respond. Don't quench the spirit's movement in your life. If you have something that you want to pray about that you would love prayer for, we would be honored to pray for you. So Lord Jesus, I pray, Jesus, I pray that you are glorified. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to walk in your way, that we would be serious about our pursuit of holiness, that we would be serious about guarding other people from sin, Jesus, we love you. Thank you for sacrificing yourself for us. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would fill this place and you would would move now, that you would cause people to walk in your way. Would we respond according to your grace? We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let's respond however the Lord is leading.